of Jesus in Matthew. Got a little set of them. I just want to say, um, you know, there's some benefits for, to having you uh, be the second time I preach a sermon because I realized, oh, this might be a little hard to follow. Uh, but basically what I'm doing here is there's a certain, again, there's, uh, there's five parables here. And I basically try to address some of that question that was in, asked in that when we first started reading this section of parables. Why does Jesus talk in parables? And talk a bit about how language works and also how the kingdom of God works. So it might be a little hard to follow uh, where I'm going, but we'll get there eventually. All right, so Matthew chapter 13. Starting with verse 31. All right, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. But what is the smallest of, see they say all your seeds, it's not, there's no your there. That's, that's, the, trans, that's the Bible company getting nervous about the fact that there are smaller seeds. Anyway, so they put words in there like that, it's ridiculous. It's, Jesus mean, just means it's a small seed. All right, anyway. Uh, Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them that wasn't using a parable. All right, now skipping down. Uh, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. He found one of great value and went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down in the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. That is how, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous, throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So you may recall, some of you may have been here, the first Sunday I was here, I preached and then there was a question and answer, Q&A, and there were no Qs, so I didn't give any As. Uh, There was something similar when I, the first time I preached at the church in South Bend, at that time, there were cues. And one of them was this. Did I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Now, ultimately, I think this person just wanted to know that I believed in the Bible as uniquely inspired by God, as having final authority over matters of doctrine and life. 
in his mind, that's what his Q was asking. And in that case, the A should have been simple. Yes. Because I do believe the Bible is uniquely inspired by God and is the final authority on matters of life and doctrine. But my answer was not simple. You know, I said, well, you know, there's passages in 1 Kings talking about battles, and there's that one that says Israel battled the Arameans, and there was a hundred, they killed 100,000 Arameans in one day of battle. And now 100,000, that sounds like an estimate, but it's not said it's an estimate. It says it killed 100,000. I mean, if we believe the Bible is inerrant, without error, that must mean that there were, a, on the nose, 100,000 dead Arameans. And I just, that just seems ridiculous. I mean, who was counting, you know? And, you know, hey, fellas, I thought there was 100,002, but it turns out that guy got cut in half. I counted him twice. It's really just one body. And I found another guy was faking it. He ran off when, my, when I turned my back. But it's 100,000 on the dot. My point was, I don't think inerrancy is a, again, it's not a standard the Bible is really interested in, in meeting. Like, so if there actually was only 99,999, or 99,999, that's something the Bible is no longer the inspired word of God. That seems ridiculous. Anyway, that was my answer. And as far as A's, to a Q are concerned, I'd give it probably a B, B minus. I think that person gave it an F because that was the last time we ever saw the person because we're so sure that if you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, it must be inerrant. It's not a helpful word. Anyway, I could have talked about something like the Gospel of Matthew because the Gospel of Mark tells some of these same parables. Parable of the mustard seed. But of course, in that telling, it is a parable about the kingdom of God. Matthew presents it as about the kingdom of heaven. Now, we can say those are the same thing, but are we saying that Jesus, how, which way did Jesus say it? You know, if it's inerrant, it should be that accurate. Maybe he told it twice, and once he referred to it as the kingdom of God, once he referred to it as the kingdom of heaven. That seems a little ridiculous. Then you think about it a little further and you realize, well, look, Jesus would have had, Jesus likely spoke in Aramaic, right? The New, Te uh, the New Testament was written in Greek. So, and there's no such thing as an inerrant translation of, of one language into another. Um, and what's also, when you look at these Gospels, is you realize that Matthew isn't, each of the Gospel writers are putting a particular spin on things. The, way, the reason Matthew says kingdom of heaven as opposed to kingdom of God is because there are signs throughout that gospel that indicate that Matthew is writing as sort of out of a rabbinic tradition, writing to a Jewish audience. And, uh, you know, within so Jewish tradition, the idea of, you know, not taking the Lord's name in vain. It's, they could be very strict about that. There were, there'd be those who, even as you read uh, scripture that made reference to Yahweh, you wouldn't say Yahweh. You would read and you would just say the name, right? So that you wouldn't be guilty of violating uh, the third commandment. Well, here, rather than saying 
kingdom of God. Matthew says, kingdom of heaven. You know, I, people who really want to talk about inerrancy and that sort of thing in literal reading of the Bible, uh, they, they take a issue with the, the UCC and saying things like, God is still speaking, or uh, things like, don't put uh, a period where God has left a comma. Because they, there are those who think, oh, they're saying scripture is insufficient, that it is incomplete and inadequate, and that they think they can add to what God has said, and they can say, which means they can just say whatever they want. God is not still speaking, it's us talking over what God has already said. Um, uh, you know, that sort of thing misses, I think, the point. But anyway, but the fact is, there are things we language is always sort of incomplete. We're trying to push beyond the words. Let me, here's another example of something that was happened at the uh, uh, UCC Synod, trying to, uh, regarding language. Um, they, instead of talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, they, they always referred to the kingdom of God. Um, I, the first time I encountered that phrase was actually when we were doing our services online. Maybe you heard it too. A couple of my colleagues used that phrase, kingdom of God, to get away from, they want something more gender neutral. Kingdom, of course, is masculine because of king. Kin, family, uh, is more gender inclusive. Now, I don't see myself, even though I sympathize with a lot of that, you may have noticed, like when we read scripture passages, it says, man, I try to change that. Uh, I'm not a big fan of kingdom. Um, first of all, I mean, it's not a, I don't have a problem with the fact that it's sort of a made-up word. I mean, ultimately, all words are made-up words. Some just have long histories. But I'm not, and I'm not crazy about how it sounds. It just sounds like you're saying kingdom and accidentally swallowed a letter halfway through. Uh, but I, and I also get, yes, this, the kingdom is, as I was saying when we did the greeting, the kingdom is about redefining our notions of kinship. It makes us family, so there is some truth to it. But it is, the, the kingdom of God is about more than just that. It, is not, it, is, it involves more than just people. It involves all things. It's about the universe as a whole. Uh, so, you know, whenever we see the creation operating according to God's design, wherever life is flourishing, whether humans are involved or not, it is, a flag has been planted. There's the kingdom of God operating. Anyway, I get it. I, I, I understand the reservations about kingdom. It has its limitations. It is rather gendered, um, and that can sidetrack people. But again, Every word, every word has limitations. Uh, and here again is why terms like inerrancy or literal are misleading. Because ultimately, the, the words of Scripture, what they are trying to offer us is something beyond the words themselves. Um, they... We are, attune ourselves to the language of Scripture in order to, so that it might point us and move us to something uh, greater. I mean, the fact is, why is it that Jesus is always giving us these parables? 
Why not say, all right, I'm going to give you a lecture on the kingdom of God. Here's my PowerPoint. I'm going to go through it point by point so it's perfectly clear. No, he doesn't give us a lecture. He gives us this, these parables, this grab bag of images. Hey, it's like this. It's like this. Coming at it from different angles. Part of the reason why is, is the kingdom is mysterious. It's like these things. It can't be, it, but all those likes are limited. Uh, it, 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 the kingdom of God is bigger and mysterious. You know, it'd be one of the things that's mysterious about it is that we, it's everywhere. And yet at the same time, it's never fixed to any one place. So words can never fully grasp what it is. No one image can fully grasp what it is. Words and images can only point us in the direction. One way of recognizing why that's the case is because the kingdom isn't an idea. It's not a, it's not a philosophy. It comes to us in and through a person, in and through Christ. The words of Scripture only matter when they are a means of that encounter, when those lowercase words help us encounter the uppercase word. So again, our reading is this sort of grab bag of parables, one after another. And as we read them, you probably noticed that there's sort of pairings there, right? You have the first pairing describes how the kingdom only appears to be inconsequential, um, you know, but then it has this sort of pervasive in, uh, influence. Uh, the, then there's two parables talking about how the experience of the kingdom uh, it, is, it is what the heart ultimately longs for. It's like the pearl of great price. It's like the treasure found in the field. The, then there's that fifth one that sort of pairs well, actually, to the one we read last week, right? Last week you had wheat and weeds in this field. Now it's a net with good and bad fish. Then there's, that, there's a final parable in there. And it's not about the kingdom itself, it is about the scribe who searches for it. It's one of those parables, you know, doesn't tend to stick in your memory because it's, it's, uh, it's kind of forgettable. But it's, it's an important one, particularly, I think, for our gospel writer, Matthew, because it's a parable that speaks to what Matthew does in his gospel. It's more evidence of why we think he's writing to a particularly Jewish audience. Uh, he talks about the scribe who searches the text for the kingdom, uh, having both treasures old and new. So his home is featured both on Antiques Roadshow and the less popular Cool New Stuff Roadshow, right? So he has both antiques and these new things, brings them both out. That is what Matthew does. Right? You'll notice when you read Matthew, Matthew's the one who will describe something that Jesus does and then says, and thus the words of the prophet were fulfilled. Right? There's the ancient, the old coming in. Um, so though the, the old treasures of Scripture and this are being fulfilled in new ways through the actions and words of Jesus. Now, I think... That's, that's probably the most straightforward reading of that parable. But I think 
that task is, is part of the ongoing task of us as scribes of, uh, of, of the church. That we are constantly pulling treasures from the old and seeing treasures that are new. I mean, we have nearly 2,000 years of church history. And there's a lot of garbage in that history, right? Spanish Inquisition, garbage. Uh, you know, the, the, the American church's attempt to justify chattel slavery with the Bible, garbage. But there's plenty of, there's lots of treasures in past writing. I mean, this building, of course, you know, it's been around a while. It is a, it's a tre it is to be treasured, those sorts of things. I mean, we're, but we're constantly seeking to find new treasures and, 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 and old. Uh, so it, the kingdom is alive and well and moving. We, we find its resources in the past and we see its uh, work, uh, the way in which it's taking new life today. You know, uh, I think growing up, you would often hear people talk about history as uh, always on the road of progress, right? Uh, one of the speeches by Ronald Reagan after the, the space shuttle crashed. I mean, it was a powerful speech in part because it was reinforcing our American belief that we're always, this was just one of the things that happens as we continue to make that progress forward. So in that sense, it's all about the new treasures, right? We're always coming up with these new treasures that make things better and better. I think we're, you don't hear that kind of talk as much anymore. I think we've become a little jaded, a little skeptical about our ability to, have, to see history as always moving forward. Uh, you're more likely, particularly within the church, to hear of this view that what we're doing is we are on in decline. Things are going down. Uh, some of the most prominent voices in the church uh, talk that way, and they, and oftentimes they seem to confuse the church with the United States. But it's this idea that we are at a time of decline, and their consolation for this is that they believe that this decline, the fact that things are just getting bad, is a sign that Jesus is coming soon, that we are in uh, the last days. I think that's ridiculous. Not that I'm not, I don't have problems with the way things are going. Plenty of problems. Just this past week, I said to Jen, I'll probably never have grandchildren. Who would want to have kids, <laughs> you know, in this world? And I, I mean, I'm referring by really climate change. You know, I think, well, we, you know, there are things we could do to probably fix it. I don't think we're going to do to fix it. I think we're going to have to live with some terrible consequences. But I, actually, most of the people from the church that are talking about, oh, we're going in such a bad direction, it's the end times, they're not thinking about climate change. In fact, I think the things that they do talk about are very revealing, right? What are the big enemies now? I mean, they talk about feminism as a big, you know, critical race theory, um, whatever. Uh, honestly, I think they have a hard time distinguishing the kingdom of God from their own cultural power, right? Uh, things that are a threat to their cultural power are somehow a sign of our decline. But the main reason I have an issue with that sort of take 
the suggestion that all our treasures are sort of in the past is that it, it's a misunderstanding of what, how that, this kingdom works. Yes, kingdom is at hand. It has always been at hand. It's been, it has been at hand today as it was 70 years ago, as it was 1,000 years ago, as it has been ever since the day of Pentecost. The kingdom has been at hand. It is as available to us now as it has ever been. It is, it is as mysterious now as it has always been. It is always, it's, always, it's been a little beyond our grasp now as it has always been. The way it manifests itself now, the new treasures, there are new treasures now and there are, that have, were not before. But there, and there are old treasures that we need to draw on as resources for today. But ultimately, kingdom has always been at hand, right? You know, so how do we work this out? How do we live in the midst of a, a kingdom that is, you know, that is always just, it, it's there, but a little bit beyond our grasp, but it's mysterious and yet available? Well, it reminded me, and I've been thinking a lot about a phrase I encountered while I was in grad school, uh, and it was a discussion about language itself and how do we deal with the fact that words are never inerrant, um, that language always has limits. And if we fail to see those limits, we often, uh, it can distort our picture of reality. I actually came across sort of an interesting example of this, uh, looking at the author of a, a hymn uh, some weeks ago, talking about how this hymn writer uh, was also a social reformer and that uh, started and that it was called a home for idiots, right? Well, we wouldn't see somebody as that, somebody who starts, hey, I got a home for idiots as somebody who has compassion for people with mental uh, disabilities and, and cognitive uh, disabilities. But at that time, idiot meant something else, right? So that we have to replace it. The Whitlock used to be called a home for the aged, right? You know, right? And that, you know, that word takes, has a different weight. And so we have to, words change. So how, but how do we, how do we live in a world where meanings of words changes, that the, that the thing that they point to is always a little bit beyond its grasp? Um, I mean, and we don't want to just say, well, words are meaningless. You can say whatever you want. No, there's something vital about our efforts to speak in ways that are precise and truthful. Anyway, the phrase that they use there, they said that this is a task of deep play. I love that phrase, deep play. It seems to me you, you, that's probably a really helpful phrase for understanding the work of the church, that it, it is deep play. And by play, I mean, one of the things we know about this kingdom is that it's a kingdom of grace, right? Uh, and that's, it, it, is, it is not up to us to figure it all out. It is not up to us to, to make that kingdom manifest. No, it is a kingdom that comes to us as a gift. It is grace. And so there's some freedom in, it, in that. And so it is uh, a work of play, but it is 
deep play. It's not trivial play, right? It's not just amusement. What muse means think, amuse without thinking. No, there's, there's, there's some thinking that's required because it's such, the, it's such a profound thing, the kingdom. Uh, so we, within this context of grace, we throw ourselves into this, into the play of, 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 of seeking to encounter that kingdom. We come and we, we, we discover treasures that are old. We discover tr new things, tr new treasures, the ways in which God is working now. That we don't cling to either of them because look, the kingdom is always beyond these things. Now, to engage in deep play is really a way of discovering that the world is full of parables. All these, through, the, through words, through relationships, through various experiences, the world is providing us ways of saying, ah, kingdom of God, it's like this. It's like this experience, it's like this relationship, it's like this profound truth. It, this, it's here, it's at hand. Not that I have grasped it, but it has a grasp on me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.